You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Interesting. I found this interesting. When you're looking at the things that cause their decline, again, the Spix macabre, African bees. What can they teach us? of this macaw going extinct in the wild and then so many international um, stakeholders, breeders, conservationists, zoologists coming together. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And we're having a good laugh as we start this one, but such an incredible species today, Angie, the Spix macaw. Yes, Chris. Oh my gosh. I have been excited about this podcast all week and maybe a little bit nervous too, because I don't know if I can give the Spix macaw and or macaws in general, just the credit or the platform that they deserve. I, uh, After prepping this week, it makes me want to go back and be an ornithologist or work more with parrots again. I, I, I was lucky enough um, at the zoo in Chicago to work with double yellow-headed Amazon parrot named Tequila. But my my interaction is limited and that's okay, but I would love to go study these birds in the wilds or just learn from the experts. And uh, yes, anyways, uh, it's going to be a fun amazing, hopeful podcast today. Yes, yes, yes. Because it should be brought up early on that Chris and I are going to talk a lot today about the Spix macaw and their conservation story. So there's mm-hmm. this is going to be a very conservation-heavy podcast uh, with tons of fun biology, too, yeah, and of course yeah, their yeah. intelligence and their colors. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but yeah, the Spix macaw is classified as extinct in the wild, and it has been for about 20 20 plus years, 22 mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. However, there is a m- mountainous movement that's been under the works since I think like the 70s and the 80s of trying to uh, save this species, uh, the Spix macaw, also known as the little blue macaw, uh, as for some of us might know from the movie Rio, Rio, Rio yep. 1 and Rio kids. 2. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyways, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's this story of this macaw going extinct in the wild, and then so many international um, stakeholders, breeders, conservationists, zoologists coming together to be like, we cannot let this bird go completely extinct because mm-hmm. there were some under human care with private breeders and zoos and things like that. So this very, very small remaining population uh, got together and they were able to grow it in We'll talk about it more. It's so exciting. I have goosebumps. I can't yeah, wait. I'm like yeah, a kid yeah. in a candy store. But they have recently released some back into the wild. And it's the first that this has been done for a parrot species uh, in Brazil. So incredible, incredible podcast today. And uh, we're going to definitely highlight that not only the Spix macaw is is extinct in the wild and being trying to be brought back into the wild, but Chris, so many macaws are in trouble. Uh, not not just the spicks. I mean, there are several species that need our help. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, almost all of the macaws throughout Central and South America are either threatened or critically endangered on their way to extinction. Insane. It's insane. Mm-hmm. It's insane what's going on down there. And then if you and if you branch out a little further on the bird evolutionary tree, uh, parrots in general, a third of the world's 
parrots face extinction. I know. So I know. I know. Yeah. And so I always say, if, I always say down there, it's it's across from me. Across <laughs> yeah. the Pacific Ocean. But yes, if you're yeah. if you are not a, uh, if you don't know much about parrots or macaws, or of course of this little blue macaw or the Spix macaw, my goal today is for you to fall in love with it because parrots in general, macaws are just like I said, incredible. They need a platform. They need this microphone. Mm-hmm. I want to shout from the rooftop. We have to save these guys. Well, and, and, and Angie too, it, it's, there is reintroduction ongoing. So they're going to, they're going to, I think, transition here pretty quickly. Uh, we'll talk about their story going from extinct in the wild to critically endangered. So they're, they're, they're stepping up. It reminds me a lot of the Przewalski horse. So they're yes. conservation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Zoos around the world, conservation centers around the world coming together to save the species. And I pushed for this because I really wanted to come back to Brazil. The news, this is spectacular news for us, for the world. Great news for the environment is a new president was elected uh, in Brazil. So thank you to our Brazil listeners and those that voted because the the new president, and, and I'm Excuse me, I probably won't say his name right. Uh, Luiz uh, Inacio Lula Lula da Silva, and, and I apologize again if, if I butchered that name, but uh, has been elected as the new president of Brazil, and he is vowing to reverse these policies of plowing the Amazon rainforest. The Amazon is 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 in danger. Like we talk about this every time we come to South America. It is on the tipping point of being lost forever. And it's it's complicated. The science is complicated. Again, Angie and I are animal physiologists and behaviorists. Uh, we we you know, we're not climate scientists, but the people that do study this are screaming up and down that we have to stop cutting down the rainforest in the Amazon, or it's gonna tip in the next 10 or 15 years. And we're going to lose it, and it's going to be one giant savanna. So these spixes macaws will have nowhere to live. Uh, jaguars, I mean, all these species will, will be on the brink of extinction, millions of species. So that's great news. So that's why I wanted to go there. I'm, I'm getting off the soapbox my politics, but, you know, looking at the global picture. And Angie, I, I really, this morning, I, and we were talking before we got going, uh, you know, I wake up here in New Zealand before I go to work and I get my cup of coffee and I check the news and and I saw this going around social media and it was the, the last call of the Cowie OO, if I'm saying that right, uh, of a male of this bird in Hawaii that was recorded in 1987. And I want to dedicate this episode to that bird because... He was the last of his species. He was out there in the woods calling for a female. And I'm going to play his call real quick. It, it just, think about it. He's looking for a female to mate and there's there's not one left on earth. And it's the last call of a, of a species. And it really brought a tear to my eye because I was just like, wow. And it, it, and it gives me the drive to continue this podcast, to try to inspire our listeners to take action, to help these these birds that are still here like the Spicks, right? So, real quick, this is the last call of the Kauai O'o. That's the last male of a 
the species. Singing for a female will never come. Send shivers down my back when I hear that. And I'm like, yeah. Well, I mean, and it actually relates a lot to the Spix Macaw story because for years there was only one male. One male male left, yeah. That was left. And he actually called out for probably for Spix female and to no avail. But he actually ended up pairing up with a different species, an Illigers macaw. Uh, and anyways, he disappeared. Uh, they don't know how, if he was poached or we just don't know, uh, in October of 2000, but then it took the IUCN, the International Union of Conservation and Nature, a while to basically officially declare the Spix macaw extinct in the wild. I think it was actually in 2019, but they haven't been seen in this one male. You know, it's been over 20 years, 22 years. So, but yeah, yes, so yes, I mean, that's, yeah. so that's why we do it, haunt, right? It's haunting, yeah. It is, it is. You listen to that and it is. And I just want to give a, a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. Again, you're helping support us and our mission and we are giving back to conservation. Like I said, we are dedicated to this and and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, and you have someone you want to give a shout out to. Yes. Uh, this week, I want to say hello and thank you to my dear friend, Andy. He's my fellow bird nerd buddy uh, that I worked with at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And whenever we cover a bird, he's like the first person I reach out to to talk to. We've actually had him on the podcast in the past, sharing some of his stories of interacting with the birds uh, that he's worked with. But Andy got to work with uh, two green wings uh, at the Brookfield Zoo several years ago, and he, of course, loved them, and he just told me that they're extremely easy to train. Uh, They readily step up on a perch, open their wings, hang upside down. They love mealworms, which we'll talk about that because we always think of parrots or macaws as uh, frugivores. And they, of course, that is the large portion of the diet, but they don't mind a little bit of protein here and there when they can get it. Uh, But he did remind me too, anybody who's worked with parrots knows this, but uh, the macaws especially are very vocal and very loud. (laughs) Very, very, very loud. They are loud. Like just a couple weeks ago, Pip and I were up at uh, Waiheke Island and we, we heard some caca. Uh, our parrots here in the North Island. And wow, they are just, you hear them a mile away. Rah, rah, you know, like we opened. And they're, are these the, uh, you mean the cockapos? No, 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 no. Oh, I wish I oh. saw a cockapo. I was close okay. to Little Barrier Island, and, and, and that's where they are, right? When we did that episode. But yes, because uh, we've covered, I was looking back and we've covered the cockapo. Right. Yeah. And... So, okay. We did the cockapo, was our last parrot species. And we did that in episode. 279, Keen oh, on Cockapoe. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, want to play charades? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> no, I know this one because I was, okay. this is definitely okay. one, uh, the Dracula parrot. Yes, yes. Episode 252. And you really did a good job covering uh, their intelligence and everything about parrots. So fascinating stuff. Now, let's talk about this, the Spix specifically. That's a lot to say. Spix specifically. <laughs> Spix specifically. Yeah. This, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, you know why they're poached. And poached, not maybe for feathers too, but being taken from the wild in the pet trade because they are gorgeous. These are gorgeous birds. Yes. And unfortunately, it's, I guess it's economics. I don't know. I don't know economics. But the more rare they became and the more when they get poached, they would be worth more money. So that was a huge huge reason for their 
just crazy decline uh, in the uh, in the last 40, 50 years. But yes, they are. They're stunning. I mean, their other name is the Little Blue Macaw uh, because they primarily are blue. And so the Spix uh, Macaw can be various shades of blue. And their head is going to be a gray blue with lighter color blue underparts. And then the upper half is vivid blue, like gorgeous, stunning blue. Uh, males and females are pretty much identical in their uh, coloration patterns, except for the females a little bit smaller. Uh, so just this, gosh, this is the stunning bird. And like I said, just having that subtle difference in the head feathers with it being like a little bit blue gray head is just, just beautiful. The bill of the Spix Macaw is going to be blackish in color and it's smaller and then a little bit less curved than some of its close, uh, more close relatives. The legs are going to be blackish brown, and the irises on the Spix Macaw are a pale yellow. And it's also really important to note, too, that one way that you can tell a macaw, that family, compared to other types of parrots, is they always have this like bare gray facial skin uh, near their eyes where there's no feathers. And so it just really makes their eyes pop. And it also, of course, makes their head plumage, the color of their head, just really, really stunning. So, I mean, a beautiful, beautiful bird, little blue uh, or the Spix Macaw. They are, and and they're not, you know, you know, I've seen, we've seen some, obviously some big parrots and probably the size, like I just said, the caca, not, not the largest parrot you've seen, medium sized body length of 22 inches or 56 centimeters, uh, a wingspan of about a meter, a, you know, 1.2 meters. So three, three and a half feet, um, you know, it, but they're beautiful. They are so gorgeous. I mean, I could see why, you know, they were in so much trouble. Now, their native range, Brazil, you know, the borders of Brazil, you know, probably not a lot known because now, because they are extinct in the wild, they were reduced and reduced and reduced. Uh, but they were primarily before going extinct in the wild in the Bahia region and the southern Paiayu region. Uh, regions of brazil yeah so that's like the it's like the northeastern coast right 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 yeah yeah and then the north central north central northeastern mm -hmm. coast mm -hmm. of brazil yeah and the the caraca region i think is is kind of where they're at and that's where they're being reintroduced right so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well yeah chris and i think it's important to mention too that the area where the spix macaw was last known to inhabit it's really like this uh arid region of northeastern brazil it's called the Cariba Woodlands, but the plant life and the vegetation reminds you a little bit more of an arid region where there's like thorn bushes and giant succulents and even cactus. So it, this area too, once again, is really known for this uh, uh, Caribiera tree and and that they would live in and uh, nest on. And so, yeah, very specific restricted natural habitat. And from what researchers can tell about the Spix macaw is that they do live in this like restricted natural habitat uh, that's really dependent on certain trees for nesting and then certain uh, trees for feeding, right? For the different nuts and the different fruits. Uh, so a pretty uh, restricted range that we know of. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of where they're they're being reintroduced now, and in, in, in mm-hmm. a very protected setting uh, to protect them for poachers because they're you know I even hate to bring it up, but they're worth quite a lot of money, and um, you know it's unfortunate that's what drove them to be extinct and almost extinct, you know, from the planet. Well, absolutely, Chris. And we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, one of the organizations I'm going to highlight is the Association for the Conservation of Threatened Parrots, the ACTP. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones that are collaborating with, uh, oh my goodness, like a whole bunch of different people and groups internationally to get these birds back into the wild. And uh, But anyways, part of them bringing part of their plan for bringing the birds the spicks back into the wild is doing a lot of education for locals in the area and and trying to get everyone on board to help protect these birds and show them how valuable they are for the region and 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 how and and hopefully to protect them long term. Oh, no, I know, I know. I mean, they are they they are important. I mean. Every time we talk about a bird, we always talk about seed dispersal and pollination and and all these things they do. Uh, They are almost to say, you know, ecosystem engineers a little bit. You know, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but, you know, they they are important to to germinate seeds because they pass it in their poop. All of that. I mean, they're they're critical, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And I think that in general, exactly when we cover uh, a parrot or a bird species that's a frugivore and eats a lot of seeds, that they're, uh, they help the trees grow, right? Um, it acts as a fertilizer, their feces act as a fertilizer, but then also the seeds pass through them and they fly around. So they, they drop the seeds all over in their, uh, in their feces. So in the Caraco region, uh, in this northeastern Brazil area, we don't necessarily know what, what, they would be what their impact would be right because well they're not there but it is known that they consume the fruits of cactus trees uh the seeds of the favorlira the pinhao trees uh and really help a lot of these different plants grow in this area which is arid and dry and so the more help they get from nature's helpers right the spix macaw and other birds the more these seeds can disperse and the more the likelihood they have to uh, be successful and grow into the bushes, plants, cactuses, trees, and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Really, I mean, just birds are just so important, uh, to our ecosystems and it's talking about the Spix macaw and their conservation story. Yes. That's for me, the, the really driving force behind this podcast is there is hope and it is happening in real time, like right now. And that's why Chris and I want to share this story uh, that that probably doesn't get as much like radio or podcast time as maybe some of the the more glamorous species or iconic species. But this conservation story of the Spix macaw is the story right now, the conservation story for our age. It is hopeful. It has all of the parts and pieces of what it takes to hopefully be successful with their release back into the wild and bringing an extinct species into the wild of Brazil. First time it's been done uh, with a parrot and it's not been done willy nilly. The more I read and study about the Association for the Conservation of Threatened Parrots on their website, it's awesome. We'll link it in our show notes and I'll talk about it too at the end of the podcast. 
this is not like one group. This is, I mean, the, the, it's like brilliant minds that are studying other animal reintroduction, seeing what failed, and then trying to learn from it, and just going to, I don't want to say any length, but going to extreme measures and working internationally with collaborators in Germany and collaborators. What's that one place called that you mentioned? Yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about them in, in Qatar and it, and like the world cup's going on right now in Qatar, if anybody's interested in, in soccer and I know, or football, I know many of our international listeners are, but there's the Al Wabra wildlife preservation center. And it's, it's, it's an amazing place. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it here when I get going on the conservation and just to kind of jump in here, Angie, and talk about what's going on around the world. You've already alluded to some of it, but backing up the bus a little bit and talking about why, what caused their extinction. Now, the indigenous people of Brazil had hunted these macaws uh, for substance, uh, you know, to eat them, and then probably the feathers, things like that interesting i found this interesting when you're looking at the things that cause their decline again the spix macaw african bees so you're talking about a very arid region mm-hmm. and the the africanized or quote-unquote killer bees had invaded uh breeding spaces or had killed young macaws uh the babies um and stress so that has led to a decline. And just really quickly, killer bees or these Africanized bees were, they were trying to breed a, a, a hardier bee for South America. And they were in this lab enclosure with a bunch of hives and a swarm escaped in 1956 or 57 and spread all throughout South America and now into the United States. So if you live in the US, you know about quote unquote killer bees. So that's the first time I've I've seen a species that I I've, could think of due to an invasive insect. I mean, I guess in, in Australia, there's probably a lot of that too. Anyways, that led to it. Really, the two big drivers they feel of the Spix's macaws uh, decline is trapping for the pet trade and then also habitat encroachment. You're seeing it all across uh, Brazil and South America and other rainforests throughout the world. You know, we go to Southeast Asia and palm oil, all of these things are driving these species to extinction. So that's what led to them. And then you you talked about the last male that was left out, that was out in the wild. Then they were extinct in the wild. And before this reintroduction of eight, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute, and so what what we know about the population, Angie, there's there's about, you're going to see anywhere cited from 160, a low up to 250. I I don't know, you know why we can't get hard numbers. I mean, right now there's an article in Science that says there's about 170 Spix macaws in Tasdorf near Berlin. Mm-hmm. And we do know some of these other places, a lot in private owners, uh, hands. So one is the Alwabra Wildlife Preservation in Doha uh, in Qatar, and they have 64. And I love their story because one of the sheiks there, he he, he, he founded a, a hobby farm and it was uh, Sheikh Saud. And I don't want to say their names wrong, so I'll leave it at that. 
But primarily, it was housing uh, gazelle and antelope, some endangered species, Arabian oryx. They do a lot with. And so it started as kind of a hobby thing. And now, because of the wealth that they had, this is why I love this, because the other conservation centers that that we worked at in Florida, uh, other places around the world, it starts with somebody with a lot of money and they say, I want to do something. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. You and I yep. sat four years ago, almost four, over four years ago to the day. With uh, no money. With no money. <laughs> but we said we're or going not to- money for not money for this, this passion project. Right. Enough to buy a microphone and sit yes, in an office. Of and, yeah, oh my right. gosh. I am blessed. <laughs> I am spoiled and privileged. I'm blessed beyond belief. I have a roof yes, over my head. Wonderful family. Uh, but, but no, yes, we, yeah, but yeah, I'm okay. not a, I'm not a chic. Yes, at we're this not a point. chic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, you know, we're, we're trying to make a difference. They've made a difference. And so they said, okay, we're going to start this conservation center. And they have more than 2,500 animals, some of the most endangered animals on earth. They are funding research and science. They are helping fund some of this research in the Spix Macaw. They are working with, with ACT and these other organizations that you're going to talk about. Um, they, they were really, it was really interesting, um, you know, reading some of the story about how, you know, over the last 10 years, they're trying to artificially inseminate some of these birds. And so the owl wabra wildlife preservation helping lead some of this research and, and do this. So they also have, um, with it, the North African ostrich, the golden-headed lion tamarind, that's another one. That's who I started my whole career with, yeah. doing behavior observations yeah. at Sudlana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Sudan cheetah. So they've got some very, very, uh, you know, on top of the Arabian oryx, uh, the Dama gazelle. Uh, I also got to work with Arabian oryx yeah, at the Lincoln yeah. Park Zoo. Yes. Yeah. Gearnooks, we've seen them. Mm-hmm. Gearnooks. Yeah. Jernix, yeah, we did a whole. I spe- think that's how you say. It. I don't really. We did a whole episode on it. So we did. <laughs> you know, so they they are they are helping do that, and it, it warms my heart when I see people with with money saying, "Okay, I want to do something," and then they start something like that, and and do give back to science and stuff. Now, like Angie said, in 2019 is when they were finally declared extinct in the wild, even though they had been for like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And because it takes a while, we've covered that in previous episodes. Sure. It takes a while to to make sure you don't see them for years mm-hmm. and years and years. Now, like I said, this reminds me a lot of the Przewalski horse because what do you have when you have such a small population? So we were down to thirty nine birds in the late nineties, and twenty one of those were from the same pair. Right. So you had yeah. this huge genetic bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And so what these at, these centers are doing is trying to maintain genetic diversity. And that is why I think when they were doing some of this artificial insemination is such a big deal. And they're, they're mastering this techniques because, you know, low birth rates on the, the Spix macaw, it, it's, it's very, very tough to breed them disease so right. yeah captive macaws are su- susceptible to proventricular dilation disease which affects the nerves in their digestive system and they waste away alwabra helped eradicate this disease 
you know, testing and, and high risk birds were kept away. And they said, okay, these ones are clean. These are the ones we're going to, we're going to breed. So in 2013, almost 10 years ago is when the first artificially inseminated Spix macaw chick was hatched. And now that's led to them going from 39 to now we have over 200 uh, with that. Now, the great news is they have released eight birds this year. Yes. On June yeah. 11th, 2022, they released uh, the eight captive bred spicks, uh, little blue macaws, into the Katinga area, and they are flying around in the wild. And they are planning to release... 12 more sometime in December, which this podcast will be airing into, which means that is going to happen sometime this month in the month of December. Mm -hmm. And it's super exciting because I found an article where the reporter was interviewing someone from the Spix Macaw Release Center in Brazil at just checking on them. And, and they were reported to all still uh, be alive, flocking together, flying strongly, uh, learning to evade predators. So just beautiful in the sky doing aerial maneuvers. And the other cool thing is uh, these eight Spix macaws that have been released in June, they do return daily or come and hang out um, at this aviary where they, were, where they uh, were housed for a while before to be acclimated to the, uh, of course, to the surroundings and the temperature and learn, you know, the different foods that are there. Uh, so there's a whole science of reintroduction. And of course, this we're learning it in real time here, but uh, there's many models from other species about how to reintroduce an animal to a wild area and or a bird. And so with that being said, uh, these fixed macaws will come back and check on some of their other friends that are still there. They're going to be released hopefully in December. And yeah, so they, uh, they're doing well. And it also helps the, um, the staff and the research team um, at the Spix Macaw Release Center check in with them, check, check in on them and make sure they're doing yeah. healthy and, uh, and flying free. It's so exciting. So I know, I know. Things. I mean, think about it. This was a species on really on the brink. One of the most endangered, like we said, the most endangered parrot in the world or one of them. Yeah, it was, it was like, it's up there with the kakapo and they're turning it around and Brazil it, it, and hats off to Brazil. Brazil is helping this. They, they are dedicating money and resources to helping this species come back. I know it's like, I, 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 I love Brazil. I have many friends from Brazil. I cannot wait to come to your beautiful country uh, and visit. I've been there. I've I not know. been to the North, the Northeast. I've been yeah. to the North and then the Southeast. Yep. You lucky thing. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't wait, but you know, pr protecting your own species in your backyard. So hats off to you. It's just an amazing Yeah, story. they're working. I mean, there's people working around the clock. There's people that have been working on this project for 20 years plus internationally. I mean, fighting for uh, this species to to be released, to survive, uh, to be as genetically diverse as possible, as healthy as possible, and to be released in the wild. And it takes a humongous team and a humongous effort. And so, yes, it's just a... A really yeah. hopeful oh, yeah. conservation story. Yeah, all around the world, from all from the Philippines to Germany to Qatar uh, to Brazil. It's just yeah, it's amazing what they've done. Okay, so wrapping that up, 
uh, before we jump into evolution, let's take a quick break. All right, we're back. All right, Angie, not a ton here. Uh, you know, I, I think we're going to get quickly through this and then we'll get to some physiology and then obviously the behavior. Behavior. Uh, we've covered parrot species before. I mean, over 10,000 species of bird in the class Aves. So the order is Cytisiforms. So Cytisine. Ah, what, what, what's the parrot word? Oh, Cytisine. There you go. Cytisine. I said it right. Okay, parrots. Mm-hmm. So nearly 400 species there. Now, talked about this with the New Zealand parrots, uh, the ones in my backyard, uh, Stringopodia, the New Zealand parrots. Then you have the cockatoos, so they're cockatooody, and then the sodia is the true parrots. I probably butchered all those, and I'm sorry. Um, Like you said, a a third of all parrot species are threatened with extinction. It's just so sad. It's so sad because there's so many beautiful ones. Now, in the Cytisidae, the hollow tropical parrots, there's about 164 species. Then you break it down into tribes. (laughs) It's really (laughs) complex with birds. Arini, these are beautiful, colorful parrots, tapering tails not just parrots but parakeets so over 60 species in there and our spix macaw is the only genus in cyanopsida and their species name is cyanopsida spixi so beautiful birds there's so many in there that are just gorgeous and, and we all love them a bird evolution i've covered this before came out 160 million years ago, Jurassic periods when birds really were, were emerging. The end of the fifth mass extinction, again, is when a lot of these species radiated out. So that's where the citiciforms that we know of were present. So once the dinosaurs went extinct, these species emerged. Parrots, anywhere from 66 million to 51 million years ago. And that's Molecular studies is when parrots kind of emerged. Uh, after that, the the three major claudes that I talked about, the New Zealand parrots and those, uh, broke out about 50 million years ago. And the Arini tribe broke out about 30 to 35 million years ago. So pretty ancient. I mean, these birds are birds are ancient. The Spix macaw evolved around 22 million years ago. That today's version don't have any data on like when today's version emerged, but you can you can be assured it's 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 probably a couple million years that this species been around. You know, a few hundred thousand years, no doubt. But um, they haven't changed a lot in in millions and millions and millions of years. They haven't needed to. They're beautiful, no. intelligent, social. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they definitely are. Yeah, they like you said, they're ecosystem engineers. Uh, they fly. My God, it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so jumping into kind of some facts and physiology. I mean, lifespan thirty average. I saw twenty nine to thirty three years. It's short for a parrot. I mean. The large sure. ones can live in their 50s up to 100, right? Oh, yeah. The current oldest parrot uh, is 82, Cookie. She's a Major Mitchell's cockatoo uh, at the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, which I talked about earlier yeah. with the green wings. 
So typically the larger species like the macaws and the cockatoos are usually between 35 and 50 years. And yeah, so uh, yeah, it does seem, it does seem on the, sh the shorter end, but once again, I mean, how much data do we, I, I guess we have uh, data from them being held under human care and breeders and stuff, but yeah, so it, it does seem shorter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, some of the physiology, one of the things I know you wanted to talk about is that beak. <laughs> it's just the parrots and their beaks. Yeah, I mean, those beaks are made for cracking nuts, right? Yeah, like they yeah, are fruivores, yeah. they eat seeds, they eat nuts. Um, so that, I mean, that that's that's what it's made for. And until you have had your finger in the mouth of a parrot, uh, you probably don't really have the appreciation that I have. Uh, of course, when I was a young keeper uh, working with the zoo education animals, we had tequila and she was is a was a female double yellow-headed amazon parrot that uh of course like was rehomed because she either lived too long or she talked too much or she screamed too much or she had <laughs> yeah. too many stereotypical behaviors at any rate she was donated to the uh the zoo for educational purposes she only liked men preferred men much much mm -hmm. much to uh, females so but I, I had to learn to work with her. And yes, one day I put my finger, to, I was having her step up onto a perch for an educational program. And uh, I put my finger too close to her mouth because I was a naive keeper and made a dumb mistake. Uh, one of several. <laughs> I, should write a, I should write a book. <laughs> I'm yeah, lucky to be yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, uh, yeah. And she just, she had my uh, index finger, my right hand in, in, her, in her mouth. And I knew enough about... Um, parrot uh, behavior and horror stories from other keepers and stuff is you definitely don't want to like pull Yank it, yeah. uh, because that can, you know, if they have it clamped down, then that's just not what you want to do. So I had no other choice besides to like look her in the eye and just like quietly, like with my eyes plead for her to allow me to have <laughs> my fingertip because I played piano and guitar and I just I like, I like my fingertips, you know, you can touch things, you can tell the difference between hot and cold. Uh, and so uh, I, in my brain, the standoff, the tequila Angie standoff lasted 30 five seconds. Years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I'm sure in reality it was like two or three seconds. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But bless her heart or the powers that be, she looked at me and she slowly, almost in a teasing way, opened her her uh, beak up so I was allowed to have my finger back and I never made that mistake again because of the parrot and or the macaws bite force is gnarly oh it's yeah it's upwards of of 500 to 700 pounds per square inch mm -hmm. so that's the estimates on their bite strength which mm -hmm. is like a large dog canid yes so we're talking uh, major damage to the tip of your finger, if not taking the whole thing, obviously depends on the the, the bird, the size, the beak, all of that. I mean, Angie, that's, you know, like they said, large uh, humans were like 160 per square inch. It, it's good. To, yeah. You, you almost lost your finger. Yes. And, <laughs> I, like, and, oh, I, and, and I want to point out too, though, with tequila, I mean, I love that bird after I got to know her and after she let me keep my fingertip. The double yellow-headed Amazon parrot, too, is endangered. Uh, 
It's uh, found in Mexico and Northern Central America, and it is struggling in the wild. And I mean, tequila, God, I mean, knowing her and just her personality and her, yeah, her, her pros and her cons and everything in between. Like, I love that bird. And just to think that her wild counterpart cousins are also endangered. It's just, it's just crazy sad. And then, of course, whenever we talk about macaws or parrots in general, is it's important to mention, too, that they have special feet. And so they have what's known as a zygodactyl foot, where they have two toes that face forward and another two toes that face backwards and that help them climb and grasp really well uh, and hang upside down and use uh, use tools, which we'll talk about in some species of parrots and macaws, uh, to uh, feed themselves. So they use their feet, other uh, use their uh, the zygodactyl uh, foot for just tons of climbing, grasping, foraging, uh, grooming, of course. And so, yeah, they're really specialized uh, feet uh, that parrots are known to have. And I want to point out too that. Most birds that are not in the parrot family or the macaw family, their feet are different. They have three toes pointing forward and one toe pointing backwards. Okay. So that's where this two two forward and two backward, the zygodactyl uh, setup almost makes them, I mean, some behaviorist researchers will say almost primate-like as far as this mannerism where they can use their feet as a hand and have a lot of uh, nimble uh, ability to grasp, whether it's the nuts that they're eating or the limbs that they're walking across. So yeah, it's really a cool, uh, unique physiology that's found in the parrot family. Yeah, because they, they are, they, they do use their hands quite a, quite a lot, right? Or their hands. That little slip is because yes, these feet act like hands, like yeah. they have mannerisms. <laughs> Similar to us, similar to us primates, right? So, which you don't you don't see that in um, yeah. in other species of birds. So, pretty yeah. pretty cool stuff. And of course, you can't talk about the macaw or the parrot family without talking about their feathers. And Chris and I could probably have a whole podcast just about feather physiology. So we won't go there today. Uh, but I do want to talk about this this range of colors that they have, and they're so beautiful. And of course, with the uh, the little blue or the spix macaw, which is blue, uh, other different species of macaws have just this brilliant plumage, right? Like greens and yellows and blues and uh, reds, and I mean, just just incredible. Uh, but what researchers have shown is that parrot feathers specifically contain antibacterial pigments, and so. Um, a parrot's feathers has a special defense system against damage. And what it's called, they've actually named it after the parrot family. So I'm probably not going to say this right, but it's Psittacopholins is a bacterial resistant pigment that only parrots produce. And it helps give these birds feathers, this brilliant red, yellow, and green. And there was a study in 2011 that basically uh, exposed different colors of the feathers to feathered to a feather damaging bacteria strain and found that this cytocopholins was able to help protect the pigments of these brilliant uh these brilliant uh feathers and keep them from degradation so 
I didn't know that. That's yeah. yeah, Look at you, look at you, Doctor Angie, coming out of these. Well, yeah, I mean, their colors are just so striking in the family. All they're all just beautiful. I mean, well, we talked about the Dracula parrot, which is like black and red. Oh, yeah, just just very very vibrant and and they stand out too. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know. I didn't really come across anything of why these brilliant colors um, evolved. I'm sure it was probably either for sexual selection or somewhat camouflage them too, especially like the green. Uh, the green and yellow colored macaws and parrots. So, yeah, but just like I said, we could talk. I mean, and I would actually probably want an ornithologist on here to talk more about the feather physiology. Right, but, right, yeah, uh, yeah. That's just like a little, a little tidbit of fun stuff. Oh, that's fun. Uh, yeah, that's fun. For the parrots and the macaws. Yeah. Well, before we get into, get into some behaviors, so you've said this uh, frugivores or granivores. But again, we don't have a lot of data because they were extinct in the wild. Uh, but it, it, it is the the few times I saw them out there, they were eating some local palms and and other fruits and nuts uh, out there. And then in in under human care, I mean, that's basically what they're feeding them, right? Well, yeah. Well, the fruits uh, in the wild, uh, the fruits of cactus, which mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. that's very a uh, very specific niche. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep. And then also, uh, they've been they were observed eating uh, the fruits of the. Uh, of the of a, a local palm called Lakiri. Yeah. Yep. 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 So, and that makes sense. I mean, it's you said arid region of of Brazil where we last known where they lived. So, interesting behaviors with parrots, Angie. Right. So, what are some of the other things that 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 uh, we haven't talked about yet? Well, what my buddy Andy reminded me of uh, is that the macaws are really well known for having this clay licking behavior. And so it's not every species of macaw, uh, but certain species of macaws in the wild um, flock to this mountainous area of clay, and they've been nicknamed macaw macaw licks. I don't know why macaw licks. Okay, okay, that's hard for okay, me to say. Okay. Uh, but there's but there's awesome photos that you can find, of course, um, on the internet or in YouTube videos of especially like the scarlet macaws, those beautiful like red, blue, and yellow macaws just lining up and uh, on this like clay mound and just going to town <laughs> and consuming it right so licking it and 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 pulling it off in little chunks and and uh and consuming it and so it's it's made it's made researchers pause for a long time and uh we they don't fully understand the behavior this clay eating behavior in certain species of macaws and it was suggested years ago that depending on what area the different species of macaws, right? Because there's like 20, 22 of them. Depending on where they live in certain regions of the wild, uh, some of the nuts and the fruits and the seeds and the and the, the plant material that they eat uh, may have uh, toxic or noxious uh, substances in them. Uh, and of course, the birds are able to digest them. But it might, the, the thought was that maybe it wreaks havoc on their digestive system or makes them feel not well. And so it was suggested that these, uh, these clay macaulics, uh, this clay eating behavior was to help neutralize, if you will, some of the toxic substances, which they consume in their natural diet. And so what researchers have found, like, especially in Peru is that outside of the Amazon basin, uh, this macaw, clay licking behavior is not really seen. So it is, it is regional. And so researchers in Peru basically tested the clay and trying to figure out what 
what type of uh, minerals and mm-hmm, elements mm-hmm. are in there. And they found that uh, the Kalix don't have um, higher levels of cation exchange elements to basically, quote unquote, to reduce like the toxic insult that some of these plant species are giving them. So that they don't, they don't, they think this whole like absorb toxin hypothesis is not, doesn't, is not holding up because in areas where like the Spix macaw lives and I'm a little bit east of like the Amazon basin, uh, they eat some plants too that have a little bit of, uh, some, some elements of some noxious behaviors and they don't some elements of perhaps like toxic or just, un, you know, unsavory uh, of chemicals in some of these plants and nuts and stuff like that. Uh, but they don't do the clay licking behavior, right? So what they think now is what they're getting from the clay in the Amazon basin where they do some of this, uh, this behavior is they think it might be salt. Okay. Because looking at the regions where the macaws don't do the clay licking behavior, uh, they're near, they're closer to the ocean. And so they think that the, the macaws are probably able to get enough salt in their diet, uh, from just being near the coast. But the more central and inland you go, the further away from the ocean you are, uh, the sodium is lacking in their diet. And as I mean, similar to humans and other mammals and birds, sodium is a a critical element and it can be scarce in certain regions that are greater than about a hundred kilometers from the ocean. So that's kind of the new running hypotheses uh, about why they do this, uh, this clay consumption behavior. Uh, Other besides sodium being in the clay, there's, uh, they're wondering if there's other minerals uh, that they're that the, maybe the birds need more of, such as uh, col- colbumine, such as colbumine, or even even other vitamins such as B12. So they do think it's nutrient driven, of course, right? Uh, but we, we talk a lot about salt licks with other species that we've covered, where they'll travel great Mineral distances. Blocks, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. we know the zebras do it, and uh, and the wildebeest, and the and the great migration, and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I just uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, in a bird mm-hmm. species, that's interesting. Yeah, that's really exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, how yeah. some do it and some don't do it, right? So it yeah. has it, a lot depends on regionally, and that's where these animals that evolve in these certain specific niches, like the spix macaw. I mean, they have this relationship with the area that they live in, and that they've worked out over hundreds of thousands or mil- you know millions of years, and. Yes to remove them from the wild is just so sad. And that's why I, I think it's just brilliant that they're bringing back the Spix macaw. And I just have a yeah, lot, and I mean, a lot of hope of, for these guys. The repercussions we don't see for decades, if not hundreds of years, you know, so exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got to get them back out there. Now, again, I, I know reading some of the, the literature, there's not a lot on behavior specifically on the Spix, right? Sure. It's so, it's just so interesting. Cause we cover species where there's like, not a lot of behavior of them in the wild because they're either nocturnal or they're uh, deep ocean swimming uh, mammals or animals where we just don't know a lot about them. Uh, and so it's so sad that the reason we don't know a lot about the Spix macaw and their natural behavior in the wild is because, well, there just isn't enough of them to really study. So some of the behavior we do know is coming from uh, studying them under human care and captivity and so some of the behaviors reported 
are that the Spix Macaws diurnal and that they are a, um, okay. And that when they are in the wild from studying this lone male, um, back in like the, uh, the, the nineties, uh, that they are very routine oriented birds. So they'll fall follow similar flight patterns, similar foraging activities. They'll bathe around the same time each day. So they like routine. Uh, they're like, like, like your grandparents or my, my mom, for instance, bless her heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Or my kids. My kids love routine too. So yes, yes, they do. It's good. For I guess kids. I do too. Now, and now I'm, now I'm in my mid forties. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I like, I love going on vacation, but yes, my digestive system gets a little more upset <laughs> and I don't get enough sleep and I'm cranky. So <laughs> come to think of it i like routine as well but uh yeah 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 yeah, uh anyways uh so yeah they definitely love their routine and um and there was one cute example from this lone male uh they recorded him every night at sunset escorting his mate which remember was not a spix macaw because there weren't any females left he uh paired up with a female illinger's macaw so he would escort her back to her nest before returning to his own every night so super romantic right from what, <laughs> yeah from yeah, what we yeah. know about them in the wild yeah uh and then just in general macaws uh it's pretty fascinating uh they can fly up to 35 miles or 56 kilometers per hour so that's some pretty good speed and mm-hmm, once again mm-hmm. that's not the spix's number that's just macaws in general general course, yep. depending on their size and the species it'll probably change a little bit uh but what we do know about Spix macaw behavior has been reported is this really interesting uh, behavior that they'll do when they're threatened. So especially when a male or female Spix macaw is threatened, if uh, they are protecting their eggs or a fledgling, what the adult will do is they'll lie on their side on the ground Okay, not even like in a tree or anything. They'll lie on the on their side on the ground to basically attract the predator to themselves. Yeah, <laughs> which is so sweet. They're just like the sweetest <laughs> little bird. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, and and talk about selfless, right? Mm-hmm, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're not like the the quakas that eject the baby out of the pouch <laughs> when they run away. No, quakas are darling, and we yes. covered them in an episode, and we talked all about the baby throwing behavior. They don't really throw the baby; they're just um, their uh, probably autonomic nervous system gets so worked up, yeah, and that the baby will come out, like fly ejected. Out of their- <laughs> <laughs> The baby. <laughs> out of out of yeah out of their like uh out of their little pouch or whatever because they're from australia and so yes uh the spix macaw is opposite of that they yeah. are gonna lay down their life on the ground yeah. and hopefully just uh distract the predator from going after the fledgling or the eggs mm-hmm. uh but on the opposite side too they do have a loud voice and they, uh, depending on the situation, they will utilize their loud voice. They will flap their wings and potentially even act aggressively towards a predator or some uh, a competitor. Depending on the situation, they can decide if they want to uh, basically play dead or distract or mm-hmm. scream and yell and uh, and go after the predator. So, and then what's presumed about their social behavior in the wild is that the spix macaw uh, will travel in pairs or in really small family groups. Uh, and that they will roost and nest together in the treetops at night. 
As far as some of the other species of macaws that are known to either travel to these uh, clay licks in large numbers or roost in 20, 30, 40, 50 at a time, we just don't really have that information about the Spix macaws, of course. We opened with a vocalization. They're, they were pretty loud. Like you said, macaws are very loud. So at least we can see them under human care interacting, right? Yeah, I think in the wild, they are a little bit more shy. Uh, but during flight, they definitely have that very loud um, like squ- uh, squawk, I suppose, or uh, the researchers say quark, a quark cry. Uh, but yes, they... Uh, uh, they definitely can, they definitely can be loud, and of course, like other species of macaws, uh, spix macaws can can mimic masters of mimicry. Uh, they can make human noises, and they are considered a, a one of these quote unquote talking birds. But yes, uh, macaws in gen- general are lively, noisy. Uh, yeah, they, they are uh, probably not a bird you want to keep in your house or <laughs> they're just loud. Oh, they're just loud yeah. parrots in general. Oh, just yeah. Loud. I oh yeah. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's awesome when we're out birding or, you know, I go down to Sanctuary Mountain. Uh, yeah. They just, like I said, we were at Weeheek Island down Sanctuary Mountain. A lot of caca there too, because it's protected reserve and, and you hear them. I mean, you hear them flying, squawking. Well, they especially are not when quiet. there's a lot of them, right? Yeah, like oh you just God, you have a couple and some of the videos I was watching uh, or that we opened with or that the Association for the Conservation of Threatened Parrots, the ACTP put up. I mean, they have a couple birds like that are making noises and yeah, I mean then you multiply that by like like those eight spix macaws that are flying free in the wild of Brazil, I'm sure are can be very noisy. Yeah, yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure, for sure. But that helps them, right? Like that's that's the way that they find each other, the way that they mm-hmm. communicate to mm-hmm. each other. And I mean, they're so intelligent. Uh, I at this point I, I couldn't find any literature on like what a different call. I mean, obviously some calls are alarm calls and some calls are more nurturing. Uh but I I I mean I would I would speculate that uh their vocalizations are probably even more meaningful than that. Like as we're learning with these intelligent animals, like the dolphins and, um, uh, and some of the whale species at orcas that we're learning where, I mean, not only do they make calls, but they make specific calls and they, and depending on what their pot is in and they have culture and they, and then some of the dolphins actually have names for each other. Like they have their own click noise that's for a specific dolphin and so none of that i couldn't find anything of that in the uh in the parrot or macaw intelligent literature intelligence cognition literature but chris the the scientific evidence for the intelligence of several species of parrots including macaws is just i mean it's just through the roof it's just it's incredible uh i mean and it, it makes sense because these birds have big brains and they have these amazing feet that act like uh, help feed them and act like tools. Uh, they are very adept at changing in the different environments that they live in if needed. I mean, it's, it's not surprising with, with their evolution that they have emerged as just uh, having the intel, uh, a lot of times, uh, cognition researchers will try and behaviorists will try to relate the uh, intelligence to 
us humans. And I think that helps us understand it a little bit more, even though, of course, animal intelligence definitely in some ways different than human intelligence. And we're still learning so much about it. But they'll say anywhere from like a, a two-year-old to a five-year-old as far as the task that they are able to complete, uh, the cognition that they're able to use, the, the self-understanding, the social understanding. And and what, what we've seen in um, animal intelligence, behavior, and cognition literature throughout the years is that animals that are social uh, at, tend to, at this point, stand out on the on the cognition cognition scales. Oh yeah, I mean we oh, it was the crow the crow episode was just phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal bird. We had a lot of fun talking about that. So it, it depends on the list you look at because I was like, well, one of the smartest birds in the world is here, in New Zealand, South Island. Uh, yes, the to, Kia. Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about them in a second for sure. Yeah, I've yet to see them in the wild. Uh, on my de- definitely on my bucket list. We, we need get, to cover them too. We will, we will, we will, and. Uh, we'll get down there more to the South Island and explore and look for them. Uh, crows were the were. It depends on the list, but crows are generally accepted as the most intelligent bird. With the key up there, the raven. You talked a lot about the African gray and then the macaws. I mean, they're they're in the mix. Yes, yeah, so I just want to highlight uh, those three species in general. Starting starting with the African gray, right? So there's been a lot of research on African grays, uh, and so far the studies have shown on their cognition that they have object permanence. They have numerical abilities, so some counting, uh, really cool stuff that they're doing with counting and shapes and colors. Uh, a lot of social learning, of course, uh, problem solving abilities understanding of abstract concepts like the same versus different. In fact, there's a couple famous uh, African gray parrots. One is named Alex, and he has been at the Pepperberg Lab, uh, which has been operated at a few places, but I believe currently now is back at Harvard. And Alex is said to have the intelligence of a five-year-old, yeah. which <laughs> my five-year-old just turned six <laughs> in August. And that's insane. I mean, I wow, wow. Okay, but yeah, Alex basically uh, can count spe- count uh, specific colors. Like knows how many orange things blocks there are, how many yellow blocks there are. And Alex uh, passed away in uh, two th- uh, thousand and seven. But he they did a lot of human lang- language experiments with him. He learned over a hundred words, and once again uh, understood bigger, smaller, same, different. Uh, count up to eight subtracting numbers uh was learning arabic numbers as well as the alphabet <laughs> it's crazy. So just like crazy yeah, okay and yeah. then um and then uh, there is uh there is a world record holder for the most words and that is actually not alex uh the most wor- words is 1700 words wow and this is by a chatty cheery blue parakeet uh known as puck 1700 so, words mm-hmm. wow do we right. know do i even know 1700 words i'm sure i do but still i cannot sp- <laughs> i don't think i could spell 1700 words correctly i'll tell you that much unfortunately it took me a long time both john and i are not good spellers and so our poor children they're gonna have to boys are gonna have to try very hard in spelling and it's okay to have to try hard at things yes <laughs> that's my that's yeah, my yeah, setback yeah. yeah but yes and then i mean so african grays once again their words just it's just incredible uh, the things that they know. But as you mentioned, the Kia down in New Zealand is just also 
blows uh you know blows other other animals out of the water as far as how intelligent they are uh they use tools um definitely a lot of tool usage uh to figure out puzzles uh figure out how to get food uh they understand how to uh basically spring traps for other animals in the wild so they spring the trap and then they steal the food I mean, just the list for Kia intelligence was just mind boggling as far as a lot of the studies, choir, food, stuff like that. It was just, just incredible. So we, I really, really want to cover the Kia. We will. We will. We will. Uh, I mean, so, they are cheeky, cheeky birds. You hear yes. all sorts of stories about them. It's hilarious. Well, and they live like, uh, they can tolerate alpine. cold too, yeah, they're right? they're alpine parrots. Yeah. I, I, I think yes. the world's only alpine parrot when we looked it up. Yeah, so, so we cool. will cover so, them, but yeah, and I got to go out and see them. So maybe the second I see a Kia, I don't know when I'm going to get down to South Island again, but when I do, <laughs> I've seen them at the zoo here. At the zoo, Jesse works at, they have Kia, but, uh, you know, seeing them in the wild is definitely a big uh, yeah, so they, that'd be fun too to have a Kia keeper on too because I bet they have a lot of good stories about working. Oh, with they're them awful. Just... Yeah, they just—they're really tough the, on the exhibits and stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah. super smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, another uh, endangered bird. You know, one of right, them. right. I mean, that's geez, that's the thing. Uh, and then, of course, macaws. Like that's what I wanted to focus in on uh, for this podcast because we're talking about the Spix macaw today. It goes without saying that macaws definitely have one of the bigger relative brain size and neuron density among all the parrot species. And there's just several studies. What we'll, we'll call it borderline tool use. It depends on the researcher's definition of tool use, but definitely tool use to an extent. And some examples of that, of this uh, borderline tool use in the wild is going to be, is hyacinth macaws. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, and green macaws. There's been reports of them wrapping certain nuts with leaves, which help them have a better grip as they were using their feet and their beaks to open it. And other species of macaws, such as the wild blue-throated macaws, uh, do some really interesting manipulation of some of the palm seeds uh, in order to extract uh, the substances from them that is once again been classified as borderline tool use. And I, once again, I don't think I'm doing them justice. I, I don't, but uh, we need we need to spread the word, and we need to get excited about it. And when mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. if you have kids or nephews or nieces or cousins or neighbors or or whatever that are anywhere from two to five years old, you can you can be pretty fairly certain that those spix macaws are are much smarter than them. You know yeah. that are that it, and, and have evolved this whole just life that we need to help uh, help save. Yep. 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 Well, how are we saving them? I mean, with the repro and, you know, this, uh, these very con these very focused, uh, breeding programs that are going on, uh, through zoos and these conservation centers. So what, what do we know about, uh, the reproduction? Well, Chris, not as much as we probably should about spics in the wild, uh, but definitely living under human care uh, and the captive bred spix macaws, researchers are just are doing great, right? They've been able to take a species that is very slow to reproduce, slow to mature, uh, and then and, and, and increase their numbers in the past 20 years. But as far as in the wild, we know that the spix macaws will typically breed from November to March. Uh, and typical to most macaws and parrots, spix macaws are monogamous and they do mate for life. 
And of course, there was that example of the last wild male, Spix Macaw, who was very loyal uh, to the female Illinger Macaw that he paramated with. And they did have eggs, but they were howl and infertile. Um, but of course, he was very uh, loving of her and es- escorted her to her nest every night and uh, very, very loyal to her. Now, when the Spix Macaw is under human care, there doesn't seem to be a lot of courtship displays, right? When we think of birds, I mean, gosh, there's so many birds I want to cover. I'm reading this book, preparing for an interview in a couple weeks, and it's just all about uh, just animal intelligence and cognition and creativity and just going through a lot of the, uh, the book goes through a lot of the different bird courtship behaviors. Oh my gosh, they're so wild. They're so fun. Uh, But so uh, we'll talk about that in the interview. And uh, yeah, I definitely have some birds I want to cover soon. But in, as far as we know, this the Spix Macaw, it's not this elaborate courtship display. Uh, but what they will do some mutual feeding and uh, they will be a little bit more aggressive towards their keepers. So a little bit more territorial uh, when they are um, in their breeding season. And the Spix Macaw will typically use the same nest each year. Uh, and so that once again makes them somewhat vulnerable to poaching, right? If they know where they're going to be. The incubation of the eggs lasts uh, about 26 days. And of course, the chicks, Spix macaws, are born blind and helpless and featherless. And they, yeah, they look like dinosaurs when they're born. Like it's really, I know. I they're watching, like, oh. Uh. <laughs> I was watching videos that the um, ACTP had on on YouTube and where they're rear, you know, they're hand rearing a lot of these as many chicks as possible to help increase their numbers. And yeah, the, the videos of them, they were like, you just, because these, you know, as the adult parrots are just stunning, like lookers, like just jaw dropping, gorgeous. And then you see the chick come out and you're just like, ooh, okay. In the wild, the Spix Macaw chick will fledge after about two months and they're typically independent after five months. But during this time, the Spix macaws, both male and female, are really good parents. And that's pretty typical of a citizen uh, where they, uh, both parents will feed the offspring for up to three months. And of course, the parents will provide protection and be very aggressive um, if the birds are threatened. And of course, how Spix macaw chicks are reared in the wild, there's a lot left to speculation. But what we have seen under human care is that the female macaw is very, very actively involved in helping the the fledgling learn how to fly. And so that Mm -hmm. flight learning process and... But, and in general, both male and female are involved in feeding them and, and their growth and helping them learn and develop. Uh, so we, we think that in the wild, they probably live in a very close knit, very dependent family unit, especially earlier on those first couple months. Um, but we don't really know for sure. Uh, of course, from taking care of Spix macaws under human care, we do know that their sexual maturity for both male and female is around seven years. So, I mean, it, when we talk about generation interval and really increasing these numbers, both uh, in captivity um, at some of these breeding facilities, but then in the wild as well, like it's not going to happen overnight. It might not even happen in our lifetime, even with all these dedicated scientists and uh, the dedicated land areas for them that are protected in Brazil because it, it's, it's, it's slow. It's a, uh, it's a slow moving system there. Uh, and then of course, 
under human care when they're, you know, when they're being reared and being helped along, uh, I think the offspring survival is pretty darn good because there's people are, you know, helping. Uh, but in this, in the wild, I mean, you know, I mean, how many of those eggs actually make it to hatch? And then how many of those fledglings actually fledge? And then how many of them make it to adulthood? And then how many of them actually make it to sexual maturity? I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely still a very big upward battle, upward hill climb for these uh, spix macaws. As long as we can save their habitats and work together and have this passion and work our butts off, not only can we save uh, the spix macaw and bring them back to the wild, um, save them from being extinct in the wild, uh, but we can do this with other species and we can help keep the numbers up for species that these species of macaws that are critically endangered and endangered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we already mentioned, you know, maybe over 200 and they're re-releasing them now, but you definitely wanted to cover the organization responsible for this, right? This reintroduction. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of organizations working together, but this is the primarily one that's shipping them back to Brazil to, yes. to be released. Yeah. Absolutely. So I highly recommend uh, you go to uh, social media and follow the Association for the Conservation of Threatened Parrots, um, also known as the ACTP. You can just search for them on Facebook or other social media platforms. Uh, They are a registered nonprofit organization that is fighting hard for the conservation and the reintroduction of the Spix Macaw, otherwise known as the Little Blue Macaw. And their website is www.act.com dash parrots.org. So definitely uh, check their website out. And uh, they have a beautiful website filled with tons of information, tons of videos. Uh, Same thing on Facebook. They're always updating things. Uh, Very, very informational, very informative. And then there's several uh, suggestions of ways that you as a listener uh, can help the little blue macaw and help save this, uh, the species from extinction. So definitely check that out. Another really cool website dedicated to the Spix macaw, which is run by the ACTP and then other organizations. Cause once again, there's this huge collaborative effort to, uh, the birds, a lot of the birds have been housed and bred in Berlin, Germany, and then several of them have been brought to Brazil. And of course, there's been ones released in the wild. So it's just this huge uh, international multidimensional push to save the Sphinx macaw from extinction. And a beautiful website just dedicated to that is um, is at www.spix.com dash macaw m-a-c-a-w dot org and uh there you can sign up for a newsletter uh you can learn more about this ongoing recovery effort reintroduction effort uh, of what's going on uh and the history behind the spix macaw becoming extinct in the wild and how they've been bred back into a strong base population and now how the spix macaw is coming I know, back home. I know. It's a really I'm great gonna story. I'm going to cry. Like it's, it's just really awesome. And this website, it's beautiful. We'll share it on our social media as well. Uh, uh, spix-macaw.org. Otherwise, uh, it's, just fa- it's just fascinating. And then also, once again, the um, uh, Association for the Conservation of Threatened Parrots too. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it is a great story. I mean, it really is. It's a great conservation story. Uh, people around the world coming together. And 
again, what you can do for conservation, it always starts in your own backyard. Participate in bird counts. I, I every time we talk about a bird, I'm just gonna say get eBird or also add on the Merlin ID bird app. Start birding in your backyard. Do it with your if you have kids, do it with your partners, do it with your parents. It's fun. It's like Pokemon Go, but with real animals in the wild. And uh, it's just, you get hooked and addicted. And those bird counts are really helping uh, Cornell and and researchers around the world uh, track our birds and where they are. So I'm going to leave it at that, Angie. Great, great effort this week. I know a lot of the behavior was important and it's just uh, such an an amazing species. And it, it really warms my heart to see you know a great conservation success story that's ongoing and you know in the next 10 20 years we're going to see the spix macaw well established in their in their environment and thriving so thank you to all those fighting and conserving them we appreciate you all and once again it's so exciting that the spix macaw is coming back home listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com